Hi everyone, welcome to the AI of Mankind show, where I share anything interesting about mankind. I'm your host for this season. My name is Andrew Liu. I've worked across four continents and 12 international cities. Also, I've worked in tech startups across a range of roles from selling products, making customer happy, figuring out fundraising, making finance tick, building teams, and developing sticky products. Apart from building startups, I've also worked in Fortune 500 companies as a chief data scientist or technologist or people leader. You can call me jack of all trades or master of learning. I hope to make this podcast show a great learning experience for us. In each season, there is a series of interesting things where I invite guests to share their views about their life and interests. Now let the show begin. Okay, before that, let me first introduce you. Like, Danny. thank you for coming to the show. To anybody who is listening to this, allow me to have the honor to introduce our guest for today. His name is Dennis Rotman, who graduated from Sorbonne University and a Paris DD University, writing one of the very first word to metrics embedding solution. He began his career authoring one of the first AI connective natural language processing or NLP in short chat box. Applied as a Lich teacher for Moet, Chardon, and other companies. He authored an AI resource optimizer for IBM and apparel producers. He then authored an advanced planning and scheduling chain use worldwide. Dennis is the author of artificial intelligence books such as Transformers for Natural Language Processing. Of course, for more info, you can check out his LinkedIn website at Dennis Rotman at 0B034. 043. And of course, I'll put it on the LinkedIn show notes. And his recent publication, there's a lot, but I think of one of particular notes is the Transformer for Natural, which processing, building innovative deep neural networks architectures for NLP with Python, Py, PyTop, TensorFlow, but Roberta, and more paperback on the 29th of January 2021. So Dennis, thank you so much for allowing me to introduce you. Yeah. And thank you for inviting me. I'd love to really ask you the first question. I think let's let the audience know. Because I think a few of our listeners actually contacted me and say, hey, Dennis Rotman, actually let me put it up over here so that we can collect uh, the okay. that conversation. Okay. One second. Eh? So it's easier and more fun that we can talk about it. So, yeah. So that was the, let me put out that link post. So yeah, this was the one. Yeah. I'm going to do a bit of zooming in. So which one is it? I think this was the one. Let me read out. Uh, can you see this? Is it too small? Maybe one it's a bit small. Yeah, one second. Let me try to. Ah, so yeah, is this clearer? Let me zoom in a bit. A little better. Yeah. Yeah, so this was the one that got everybody's attention within the community of my podcast. So this is what you say. Ask yourself if you want to continue mm-hmm. reading chat GPT bars or implementing open AI chat GPT transformer. Do you want to lead the path to innovation or vanish when the bars fade away. Yeah, of course. And then yeah, you talk about, let me break this down for you. Step one, step two, all the way. I remember now. Yeah, I got it. Yes. And this was the one that got a few of the listeners' attention. And yeah, so before that, I think, let us 
allow the audience to first know more about you before we comment on this post. I think the first question is, tell us your backstory. How do you become an AI practitioner from the day that you finished school? Okay. I started my business as a student already when I was at the university. And the first business was uh, teaching languages. Okay. But very quickly, I had too many students. I was thinking of ways to automate the teaching. So I began writing where that would create dialogue. Exactly, exactly like chat GPT, but with not, not a probabilistic method, with semantic method, with new bases and some probabilities. So I developed some dialogue software and the LVMA, which everyone knows is the largest luxury corporation in the world. They were very interested because they say we have many executives and they don't have time to, do it, to move around. So I installed the software in the laboratory where they could go sit down and they could talk, they could communicate with the computer. And the, the dialogue was not with the artificial voice, it was with natural voices like we do in the chatbots today. And the dialogue was very, very complex. It would remember what the user would say, we're in the 1980s. So wow. people are saying, but why, how is that possible? It was possible when people had big budgets. Today, it's possible because it's mainstream. But it was already possible in jet fighters in the army, places like that, where there were a lot of budgets, big budgets. You needed a lot of money. And LVMH had big budgets. So I could develop the software. And at the same time, aerospatial, which is, now Airbus had become Airbus, the plane manufacturer. Yeah. They were looking for artificial intelligence also because it's very complex. Maintenance management is very complex on aircraft and battleships. So they were looking for something in artificial intelligence to quickly solve maintenance problems. So I developed that also at the same time in the 1980s. And as I said, no one was very interested in this at that time. It was just beginning. Of course, you had American universities making a lot of buzz and noise, but but in the corporations, mostly aerospatial, it was already there. So I wasn't the only one. So I started there, and that built very quickly my career because as soon as you get tenders like for rockets or airplanes or battleships, you can enter all the corporations you want. So that's how it started. And then after that, it's just, you can look at my profile. It's just a long string of corporations. Last one being like Disney or corporations like that. All my life, I had corporations with that had good budgets so that I could do practically anything I wanted very early before it became mainstream. That's why you see this post. I'm used to implementing in corporations yeah. where it has to work. You can't just talk. It works or you get out of the corporation very quickly. Yeah. You can get kicked out of corporations as quick as you get in, and you can lose your reputation in one project. So it's it's like surfing on a big wave. If you miss the wave, then you might die on a rock. The interesting part is that every path has its own start. And you mentioned about LVMH. Can you, do you still remember that moments where how does LVMH knock on your doors or what was the conversation like that enabled that kind of use case? Was it a translation English to France or what was their story? Can you elaborate uh, on so that? How, how did both happen? The first yeah. one, 
with aerospatial was I was at Sorbonne University and uh, there was a politician that was a mathematician. He was a good mathematician and he was very interested in this. So we, we talked and he said, I, have a, I know a lot of people in the aerospatial field. Let's do a conference at the Sorbonne. Let's see the region and I'll have them come. And if it's good, then they'll contact you. I didn't know them. So organized a conference at the Sorbonne. I made the conference. I didn't know that people were there. And then after they contacted me, they'd say, we were there, we're interested. And that's for the aerospatial that led to Airbus and many companies that work around it. On the other side, LVMH had problems. Dietrich training their executives that were very busy. And the same thing happened. I was nervous and I was talking to consultants. And they said, why don't you contact this guy? He knows, he knows how to do things that are very innovative. So I went to LVMH. I installed on this. And what they did, it's in an article. In fact, on my LinkedIn profile, there's an article that tells the story. And, you, and what LVMH, they even wrote the documentation. And they publicized it. So the documentation is what, in one of my articles where I don't explain. They explain how they used it. And then after that, once you have references like that, they just people just talk and say, go see you. It just, it's just a snowball effect that goes on for years. I see. Interesting. And so tell me more as, as you evolve from the 1980s to today, like how have you seen, like what's your view on digital transformation, especially in terms of natural language processing and large language, large language models? Over the years, how has it evolved as you practice in this space? The first big step was in the early 1990s, where I implemented a very complex system for a company called Axfa. It was part of the Bayer Group, which is a big chemical company in the world. And Axfa is a pretty big company too. And I began using probabilistic algorithms. I began using Boltzmann Boltzmann equations, I began using only French mathematician chaos theory, expert system with probabilistic outcomes. So very quickly, I saw that if you want to go faster, you can use probability. So there were, so you have two paths. Yeah. You have a path which is semantic, rule bases, expert systems, controlled. That's 80% of the market even today. Not 80% of the banks uses large language models. 80% of implementation of automation is still classical expert system rule-based, but the 20% is important too. But I saw that you could go quicker with probabilities. If you take, you have big masses of data, then you can calculate. You can say, what comes after the a noun? What comes after a noun? A verb. Okay. Western languages are very easy. You can't do things like that that easy in Chinese or in agglutinative languages where you don't need a verb. So that's what Western people don't understand. We use verbs, but there are model languages that don't need for to get, and you can just pick the words together and make sentences. So anyway, it follows probabilities too. So I began introducing that and I used it a lot. I use these techniques a lot. And in fact, I've been doing AI all my life, but it didn't interest anybody at that time. In the 1990s, I just delivered, and I wouldn't say anything. I just put the algorithm behind the user interface, and if the two person's happy, 
they paid my bills, and then the, and that's it. And then he went all the way up into 2010, and then around 2015, Google came along and boosted artificial intelligence at once. They made it mainstream, but it had been going on for decades already, many fields, but all of, them, all of a sudden was mainstream. So once it was mainstream, they got a lot of budget. And then you get open AI and you get to large language models, which are just statistics, basically. You just take, you take billions of sentences and you just say, let's see the probability that this sentence, this word will come after this word and this word will come after that word and that. Okay, so I'm going to go outside. Where can you go? And you can go to your car, you can go to your garden, but it's not likely it was to celebrate to outer space. So you're going to say, once I'm in your car, where are you going? I go to the supermarket for the movies. You're not going to say I'm going into a jungle. So it's just statistics. Large language models are statistics with a huge amount of parameters so that you can make a nice, precise vector space. And for those that don't understand what vector spaces are, it's just like describing when you take a picture. You can do it with not many pixels, then more pixels, then a million pixels, then 10 million pixels, and 12 million. The image will be more precise. So statistics will be more precise if they use more parameters. That's all vector spaces are about. And then if you have hugely big machines, then you can create a lot of calculations and probabilities and add even more parameters, but it still remains probabilities. It doesn't, there's no intelligence in there. There's no consciousness. There's nothing in there. It's empty. If you want to fill it up, you're going to have to add real bases and experts. And this is already, this is already the case. I always did that. I would do probabilistic and I would add rule also to make it seem more intelligent. I would add experts, the expert of a field, the subject matter expert. And I would add, I would enter his rules. So it would filter the probability that come out. So if you say I'm going outside, if the person is specialized in gardens, it will always say you're going into the garden because I know he's a gardener. So I'll put that rule in there. Go outside. Don't suggest the car. Just suggest all the probability with garden and garden tools and tractors if you have a farm, but kick that out. So with the real base, adding the base together becomes very powerful. Okay, so what is interesting I wanted to ask is that, like you said, like back in the 1980s, you started doing it, and now there's already a 2023, and it's open AI. Is it also has, has the storage cost of hosting the data and the computing cost of the data actually made this kind of work much easier? Or like, how has that actually changed the way that these kind of large language model is being done? So, yeah, that's, the budget is an interesting subject because people are always focusing on the buzz, the hype, and how intelligent it's going to be. So I would say in the old days and today also in corporations, there are big budgets. So if you're doing a project, you can get a big budget to do your project. But that your project, you're not going to share it with the general public. It's going to be confidential. It's going to be or even classified. So the general public won't have access to it. But it's a big budget. Maybe it'll take a million dollars or $2 million over the... It, these are very expensive things. So now you go to OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, they have these big budgets. And they're giving the illusion to many people that, yeah, sure, why don't you train your budget? Sure, give me, give me $10 billion to buy a supercomputer. 
maybe you can give me another $50 million so I can have 15 engineers for several years. And then at the end, something's, and for the, I'm going to put a billion dollars in open the eye, which means that now the money has gone from local corporation to these huge distributors. People have to pay. We're going to have to pay for each token. We're going to have to pay for everything they use. So now people think it's funny, but they can't do anything about pay. People, people will be able, will have to pay for everything they do. Even if you go to a night website like Hugging Faith, yeah. Transformers, very nice thing. So you get the illusion very quickly. Oh, yeah, I downloaded it and I trained it, but it's not going to do much. You're not going to, you're going to solve small problems. If you have big problems to solve, then you have to go to the paying part of Hugging And they're going to suggest, why don't you use Amazon Web Service? Okay, but Amazon Web Service, it's limited in the number of GPUs you can rent. And also Google AI Cloud is limited. You're looking for GPUs today. You're not going to find me. Now, when OpenAI trains a transformer, how many GPUs do you think they use? 10,000. Wow. 10,000 minimum. 10,000 GPUs. And people are saying, I have no GPUs. Yeah, sure. I have a horse too. And with my horse, I'm going to go racing cars. So it's out of our reach already. It's in the hand of corporation and the distribution corporation. But it's so expensive, it'll always be that way. Unless you can have hire a hundred people. NVIDIA has very nice processing and you can rent very nice servers. But look at the cost, the cost of renting it and the cost of having two engineers and the cost of having 15 engineers to control the quality and check the data. And then the access to the data, where are you going to get the data set? Where do people think they're going to get data set? Download it from Kaggle? Sure. Makes but you're not going to go, so I'm going to go to a corporation that sells airplanes. I'm going to say, I'm download your data set from Kaggle. If it doesn't exist there, it only exists in our company. And it's protected. It's not even on a pound. It's on a server. So if you want to use it, you're going to sign 15 contracts in confidentiality. But we'll get the data set. And the data set might take you two years uh, to get it ready because it's multiple source. This information is on that database. That information is in another country. This one is where. So it's, I'm saying it's been possible for a very long time, but it's very expensive, but it can be very profitable for those who know how to use it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the future. Because as you mentioned, like lately, probabilistic is beginning to gain more prominence relative to the semantic rule base, which is currently still the dominant one. As we move downward to the future, and you also mentioned about having experts and domain reasoning to tweak and make this transformer more intelligent. We hope you enjoyed our captivating journey into the world of AI with Dennis Rothman in part one of today's podcast episode. Dennis shared his remarkable experiences and expertise, shedding light on the complexities and possibilities of AI implementations. Now, as we transition into part two of this thought-provoking discussion with Dennis, get ready to explore the future implications of AI and its impact on our daily lives. We'll delve into behavior analysis and recommendation systems that already shape our interactions with tech giants like Alibaba and Google. But are these systems truly capable of understanding and predicting our behavior? Join us as we uncover the fine line between human behavior and AI algorithms. We'll also challenge our understanding of large language models and their limitations in generating truly creative outcomes. 
Plus gain valuable insights into the potential applications of AI in healthcare and the delicate balance between human expertise and AI assistance. Denise's profound knowledge and visionary perspectives will leave you questioning the very fabric of AI's future. Don't miss out on part two of this captivating podcast episode where we continue our exploration of the AI revolution. Stay tuned for another enlightening conversation that challenges our understanding of the future of AI. Hi guys, thanks for listening to this podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, remember to subscribe to this show. If you have subscribed to this show and love this episode, please share it with your friends, family and acquaintances. See you later and see you soon.